It's 4.30am, the 5th of September, 1972, in Munich. It's the second week of the Olympic Games. Eight highly armed members of the Black September organisation scale the chain-link fence into the Olympic Village and take Israeli coaches and athletes hostage, killing two. By 1.30am the next day, the hostage drama would be all over, with 17 dead. This is the tragic story of the 1972 Munich Olympic Massacre. Hi, I'm your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Tonight, we go back more than 45 years to 1972. Elvis Presley was singing a hunk a hunk of burning love. The Vietnam War was still going on and President Nixon had just told the world that he had nothing to do with the Watergate break-in. In West Germany, the 1972 Summer Olympics in Munich, or officially known as the Games of the 20th Olympiad, they were underway. These games dubbed Die Heiterenspieler, or the Cheerful Games, I mean, that doesn't sound too cheerful. Die Heiterenspieler. We have ways of making you happy and cheerful. Die Heiterenspieler. Anyway, that's the motto for the Games. They were the second Olympics to be held in Germany, with the first being Adolf Hitler's Nazis Olympic Games in 1936. To make this the cheerful or friendly Games, and to try and rid the military image of Germany... Security personnel were to be unarmed, inconspicuous and non-confrontational. Enough to sort out the drunks and the fence jumpers trying to sneak in. However, if you do see some of the footage from the games, you see lots of people jumping over the fences to get in and I'm sure there's plenty of drunks rolling around. Part of the reason why the Games organisers wanted such a low-key presence of security personnel was in part due to the 1968 Mexico Olympics that had a massive military presence. Ten days before the Mexico Olympics opened, government forces killed hundreds of student protesters at Soloco Plaza in Mexico City. The Games organisers wanted the Munich event to show the world coming together in peace. Armed security everywhere was not what they wanted. The organisers, as part of their security preparations, asked West German psychologist George Sieber to come up with various scenarios, 26 of them to be precise, for them to plan against terrorism but we'll get back to that later in the show. The Israeli team, they were concerned about the lack of security in the Olympic village, but the German organisers assured them that there would be extra security provided to look after them. The opening ceremony of the Munich Olympics was held on August the 26th, 1972. More than 7,000 athletes from 122 countries participated. 
Australian swimmer Shane Gould would win three gold medals, a silver and a bronze, but by far the standout performance of the Games was Mark Spitz winning his record-breaking seven gold medals. That was on the 4th of September. But before he could sit back and let the achievement sink in, tragedy struck. Nine days of competition, and despite some organisational issues where athletes missed their heats, everything seemed to be going well at the event. Then came day 10. At 4.30am on the 5th of September, eight members of the Black September Group, which was a faction of the Palestine Liberation Organisation, or PLO, dressed in tracksuits and carrying duffel bags, climbed a two-metre or six-and-a-half-foot security fence near Gate 25A to gain access to the Olympic Village housing the athletes. In fact, they were helped by unsuspecting athletes to jump the fence. Inside the duffel bags were AKM assault rifles, which are very similar to the AK-47, Tokarev pistols and grenades. The eight Black September members quickly made their way to Connolly Strass 31, where the Israeli team were housed. Now, when you have a look at the Munich Olympic Village, the accommodation is very maze-like, so you would need to know your way around if you were looking for a specific target as the Black September group were. Well, they did know their way around quite well, as several of the group were employed during the construction of the village and they had stolen keys to get in. So, At around 4.55am, the eight Black September members were able to gain access straight to their targets, the Israeli team rooms. They raced to apartment one, where Israeli coaches and officials were sleeping. Yossef Gutfreund, a wrestling referee, was woken up by noise outside his room. As he got up, he noticed the door start to open and on the other side were masked gunmen. At 135 kilograms or 300 pounds, he tried in vain to close the door by putting all his weight against it while shouting out to his teammates. This did give weightlifting coach Tuvia Sokolovsky enough time to escape through a window. Moshe Weinberg, the wrestling coach, fought the gunman, but they shot him through his cheek, which only injured him, and then forced him to show them where they could find more of the team. They exited apartment one, and Weinberg told them apartment two were not Israelis, and led them to apartment three. It's thought he did this as it housed weightlifters and wrestlers, which could have uh, had a better chance at fighting off the attackers than those housed in apartment two. Problem is, the occupants were still asleep, and the six of them were rounded up and taken back to apartment one.
Here, Weinberg again tried to attack the gunman. He knocked one out and tried unsuccessfully to slash another with a fruit knife. The commotion allowed Gad Sabari to be able to run and escape via the underground parking garage, but the gunman shoot and kill Moshi Weinberg. His body would be dragged outside apartment one on the walkway. Gad Sabari does run to the US team rooms and informs them of the attack. Back inside the Israeli quarters, weightlifter Yosef Romano tries to attack one of the gunmen. In the process, he is shot and killed. It is said that he was castrated in front of the other team members and his body was laid out in front of them as a warning not to resist. I did find conflicting reports on whether or not he was shot, killed and mutilated or if he was shot, tortured, mutilated and left to die of his injuries. Regardless, he was killed in the apartment. So by now, there were two dead Israeli team members and nine hostages. The hostages were wrestling referee Yosef Goodfriend, sharpshooting coach Kihat Shaw, track and field coach Amitzer Shapira, fencing master Andre Spitzer, weightlifting judge Yakov Springer, wrestlers Eliza Halfen and Mark Slavin, and weightlifters David Berger and Ziev Friedman. The eight members of the Black September organisation were the leader Lutif Afif, using the codename Issa, his deputy Yusuf Nazal, or Tony, and junior members Afif Ahmed Hamid, or Polo, Khalid Jawad, or Salah, Ahmed Chikta, or Abu Hala, Muhammad Safadi, or Badran, Adnan Al-Gashi, or Danawi, and Al-Gashi's cousin, Jamal Al-Gashi, or Samir. So, what is the Black September organisation? Well, without going into too much detail... They were responsible for the assassination of Jordanian Prime Minister Wasfi Al-Tal, the attempted assassination of Jordan's ambassador to London, Ziad Al-Rifai. They sabotaged West German electrical and gas plants in Ravenstein and Omen in the Netherlands and in Hamburg in West Germany and the hijacking of a Belgian aircraft, Sabina Flight 572, flying from Vienna to Lod. So, they were particularly active at the time of the Olympic Games. By 5.30am, police find the body of Moshi Weinberg on the walkway and look up to see masked gunmen in the window of the apartment above. They raise the alarm. Munich Police Chief Manfred Schreiber immediately sets up a committee to deal with the terrorist attack. Schreiber led the crisis team with Federal Interior Minister Hans-Dietrich Genscher, State Secretary 
Sigmund von Braun as representative of Foreign Minister Walter Scheel and the Bavarian Minister of the Interior, Bruno Merck. In 1970, Schreiber was the official in charge of the National Olympic Committee for Germany with the task of carrying out all civil security tasks for the preparation and implementation of the Olympic Games. Schreiber is known to his officers as the sheriff, as he always gets his man. It's now 6am. Two notes are thrown out of the window of apartment one. The first states that the attackers are members of the Black September organisation and the second is a list of demands. The second note demands the release of 234 Palestinians and non-Arabs jailed in Israel, along with two German insurgents held by the German penitentiary system, Andreas Bader and Ehrlich Meinhof, who were the founders of the German Red Army Fraction. If their demands were not met by 9am, then they would shoot another hostage. Schreiber established a hotline to Israel's Prime Minister Golda Meir. Soon after 6am, as you can imagine, there are thousands of journalists and camera crews at the Olympic venue and as news starts to filter out, the world's eyes are now focused on the events in Apartment 1, Connolly Strasse 31. Just after 7am, it is known that there are nine hostages, but the number of terrorists is unknown. Israel's Prime Minister Golda Meir tells Schreiber that she needs more time to assemble her cabinet, but it is known that Israel has a policy to never negotiate with terrorists as it will just encourage further terrorist acts against them. At 8.45am, and with no answer from the Israeli Prime Minister, Schreiber decides to go up to Apartment 1 with two Olympic officials to negotiate directly for more time. Here, he meets the leader who calls himself Issa. Issa has three brothers, also in the Black September group, and two of them are held in Israeli jails. Issa is dressed in a safari suit and is wearing a white fedora. His face is covered in black shoe polish. He is very confident and agrees to Shriver's request for more time. Issa tells him he now has until 12 midday for Israel to release the prisoners and for Germany to do the same for the Red Fraction members or he will kill two more hostages. Astonishingly, even though this hostage drama is being played out just hundreds of metres away, the games go on as the International Olympic Committee refused to halt the competition. Now, look, I'm all for not giving in to demands and not letting terrorists change the way we go about life, but for fuck's sake, this is a little bit different. Anyway... By 11am, the Olympic Committee finally sees sense and suspend the Games. 
At 11.15am, the Israeli government tells Schreiber that they will not give in to the terrorist demands. They will not release a single prisoner from their jails. At this stage, Schreiber knows that the only way to end the siege is by force. The problem is, West Germany does not have an elite anti-terrorist squad to deal with the issues with issues like this. In fact, not long before this, they passed legislation that forbid the military to get involved in issues such as this. Schreiber started to assemble a team of officers that came from basic street policing duties. As as 12 midday loomed, Schreiber pleaded with the terrorists that the Israelis had accepted their demands but needed more time to organise the release of the prisoners. Although this was totally untrue, Schreiber needed more time to plan some type of action to save the hostages. At 4.30pm, a squad of 38 tracksuit-wearing German police were dispatched to take up positions around apartment 1 and for some of them to crawl down ventilation shafts, enter the building and kill the terrorists. You can see in some of the footage taken that day that these street policemen, taken from border force and ordinary street police, were not used to this sort of duty using these sorts of weapons. They clumsily climb up stairs and across roofs. The terrorists knew something was up as they looked up at the roofs from their balconies to try and see what was going on. Of course they knew what was going on, as everything was being filmed and broadcast live. The terrorists were watching everything from the telly in their room. Issa demanded they retreat or he would immediately kill two hostages. Schreiber recalled all the police back to base. Issa agreed to giving them more time And as the afternoon went on, Schreiber was able to extend each deadline until just about 5pm. Here, Issa agrees to let two members of the Olympic Committee to come and visit the hostages to ensure they are still alive. Schreiber tells the committee members he needs to know exactly how many terrorists there are in the building so he can plan the rescue strategy. Soon, Hans Dietrich Genscher and Walter Truger, the mayor of the Olympic Village, were briefly allowed into the apartments to speak with the hostages. When they returned, Schreiber is informed that they, they saw five terrorists in the building. Now, all during this time, The terrorists can be seen through the windows and sometimes they come out onto the balcony. They are wearing balaclavas to disguise their identity. What this means is they intend to get out of this alive. This is crucial when planning the rescue attempt. Eventually at 6pm, Issa makes a new demand. He wants a plane to fly him and his group, 
plus the hostages to Cairo. This gives Schreiber the break he needed to get the hostage situation out of the Olympic Village and to take it to a place where he can control the situation. Although the Egyptians had already told the Germans that they were not interested in getting involved, Schreiber again bluffed the terrorists saying Egypt Egypt had agreed. The plan they came up with is for two Bell UH-1 military helicopters to take the group to Fertenfeldsbruck, a NATO airbase where a waiting Boeing 727 would be fueled, ready to take them to Cairo. Initially, the Black September group wanted to go to Riem International Airport, but Schreiber was able to convince them that it was more practical to go to the NATO base. Schreiber planned to ambush the terrorists as they left the building and walked the 200 metres to the helicopters via the underground car park. Problem is, Issa checked the route and found that snipers had been deployed along the route and so he returned and demanded that a bus be sent to pick them up. Now, when I say snipers or sharpshooters, what they really were, as I told you before, were just ordinary policemen given machine guns. Not sniper rifles, just plain Jane machine guns. So, by the time the siege had been going on for more than 14 hours, you can imagine how the families of the hostages were feeling as each deadline came and went. There were already two dead Israelis, so you knew the Black September group was serious and had no qualms in killing further hostages. The world was watching every moment. So, Schreiber had intel that there were five terrorists and planned to have five sharpshooters located at the airport to take them out. The problem with that is that there were actually eight Black September members. He would position three of his men on the control tower and have two others positioned out in the field directly opposite. The helicopters were told to land between the control tower and his troops on the ground sideways so that they could get a clear shot once the side doors were opened. A Boeing 727 jet was positioned on the tarmac with 16 German police inside dressed as flight crew. The plan was that Issa and Tony, his second in charge, would exit the helicopters and examine the 727. Once they boarded the plane, they would be overpowered and the signal given for the sharpshooters to take out the remaining three terrorists in the helicopters. Sounds like a plan. Fail the plan, plan to fail, I say. Well, as with all plans, you need good intel or data. If you make decisions with bad intel or data, there's a pretty good chance your plan's going to go boom fuck a in your face. Now it's 10pm, and the buses arrive to take the terrorists and hostages to the awaiting helicopters. The group board the bus and are driven to the helicopters. As they alight from the bus 
and board them, it's found that there are in fact eight terrorists instead of the five they believed there was. In spite of this, there was no change of plan to increase the amount of sharpshooters at the airport. At 10.20pm, with the helicopters carrying the hostages minutes away, the police dressed as flight crew on board the 727 voted to abandon the mission without any clearance from Central Command. They said it was a suicide mission as they had no real training and that the terrorists, once they realised it was a trap, they would have exploded grenades on board the aircraft which was fully fuelled and the whole place would have gone up killing everyone. So they all just left the aircraft and ran off down the tarmac. I can totally agree with them on this one. It was really a no-win situation for them. In fact, sniper number two was heard to say, I am of the opinion that I am not a sharpshooter. They weren't, and the equipment they were using was not sniper worthy. Being equipped with the H&K G3, the ordinary assault rifle, of the German armed forces without optics or night vision devices. They were selected also because they did competitive shooting on the weekends. I mean, that's like saying you are the IT guy in the office because you play Xbox. Anyway, back to the hostage drama. At 10.30pm, the helicopters arrive at the airport but instead of landing side on to the sharpshooters placed at the control tower and in the field, they landed pointed towards them and of course away from them. This meant they had no clear shot into the aircraft. While the pilots were held at gunpoint, Issa and his deputy Tony jumped off the helicopters and walked towards the 727. When they got on board, they found it deserted and realised it was a trap. They ran off the plane and back towards the helicopters. One of the snipers took the opportunity to take out Issa and leave the group without a leader. As it was dark, he had no night vision goggles and he was using a rifle that really wasn't up to sniping. He missed Issa but got Tony in the thigh. Then all hell broke loose. As a gun battle started, the two snipers situated in the field realised they were in the line of fire from the snipers on the control tower, forcing them to take cover and effectively taking them out of the operation. News crews at this time were starting to turn up at the scene and report on the battle. So, there were eight highly armed terrorists against three poorly armed and trained German police. The two terrorists that were holding the pilots at gunpoint were the first to die, leaving the pilots free to run away from the shootout. One of the German policemen in the control tower, Anton Fliegerbauer, was killed by the gunfire. The German authorities had arranged for armoured troop carriers to be available to storm the airfield 
but they had become stuck in traffic as the route had not been cleared earlier. I mean, this is starting to just become a big fuck-up. Anyway, the gun battle raged for close to an hour, with the troop carriers still nowhere in sight to try and break the deadlock. Then there was silence. The silence didn't last long, though. At 12.04am, the 6th of September, Issa, realising that he was not getting out of this alive, turned to Springer, Halfen, Friedman and Berger in the eastern helicopter and let rip with his AKM rifle, killing the first three and severely wounding Berger. Issa then pulled the pin on a hand grenade and lobbed it into the helicopter. As Issa ran away, the helicopter exploded and incinerated the bound hostages inside. Issa was then gunned down by one of the German sharpshooters as he fled across the tarmac. Another of the Black September members, Khalid Jawad, also attempted to flee, but he was also shot and killed. At this stage, with still no armoured vehicles in sight and one helicopter in flames, the Germans had no choice but to persevere with the few men they had. Then it's believed that Adnan Al-Gashi of the Black September group turned to the hostages in the helicopter on the western side and raked his AKM rifle across the remaining bound Israelis, Gutfreund, Shaw, Slaven, Spitzer and Shapira killing them all. Eventually, again, all went silent. As the police approached the helicopters, they found that the only ones alive were three of the Black September members. Jamal Al-Gashi had been shot through his right wrist and Mohammed Safradi had sustained, had sustained a shot to his leg. Adnan Al-Gashi had escaped injury completely. Tony, the second in charge, had disappeared but was, found, but was found by police with dogs. Using tear gas, they cornered him and after a brief shootout, he was dead. So, after 21 hours, the hostage drama was all over. 17 dead. 11 Israeli team members. 5 black September members. And 1 West German police officer. So, it was a total fuck-up. The next day, after a piss-week ceremony that hardly mentioned the dead athletes at all, the games continued. The three surviving black September gunmen had been arrested after the hostage drama and were being held in a Munich prison for trial. On October the 29th, Lufthansa Flight 615 was hijacked and threatened to be blown up if the Munich attackers were not released. Safadi and the two Algashis were immediately released by West Germany, where they flew to Libya. Investigations into the Lufthansa Flight 615 incident have produced theories of a secret agreement between the German government and Black September release the surviving terrorists in exchange for assurances of no further attacks on Germany. 
there is a memorial outside the Olympic Stadium in Munich in the form of a stone tablet at the bridge linking the stadium to the former Olympic Village. There's also a memorial tablet to the slain Israelis outside the front door of their former lodging at 31 Connollystrasse. On the 15th of October 1999, now this is nearly a year before the Sydney 2000 Games, a memorial plaque was unveiled in one of the large light towers, tower number 14, outside the Sydney Olympic Stadium. Now, I'll go over a few of the issues that made this whole event happen and go as it did. Now, a lot of this has only recently come to light as there's been a shroud of silence over the whole affair for years. Firstly, the Germans wanted to show they were a friendly nation after World War II and the Games was an opportunity for them to do this. So they wanted a really low-key security presence. The security they did provide was mainly unarmed personnel and plain-closed operatives. They hoped to mainly deal with people trying to freeload and jump fences into the event, or deal with patrons that had consumed a few too many steins of beer. Before, I mentioned that they commissioned a psychologist, George Sieber, to come up with 26 terrorism scenarios to help plan for security. Well, he did that, and Scenario 21 accurately forecast armed Palestinians invading the Israeli delegation's quarters, killing and taking hostages, and demanding Israel's release of prisoners and a plane to leave West Germany. The West German organisers didn't like what they heard, asking Sieber to downside his projections from the cataclysmic to merely disorderly. From worst case to simply bad case scenarios. Situations such as Scenario 21 could only be prevented by scrapping the the Olympics entirely, they argued. Instead of strengthening security, they scaled back their expectations of threat. This is the bit that really gets me. Super G-Man George Sieber has picked the threat right on the money for the organisers, but they don't want to know that shit could go down. These Drexkel Dumkovs were in charge of keeping everyone safe and it is their failure that made everything else possible. Then, let's have a look at the vetting of the staff that helped build the Olympic Village. Well, back then, it was probably not as easy today. But Issa was known to have been employed there and was seen on site just weeks before the opening ceremony. So he knew his way around the village and had stolen keys to get access inside the building. The Israelis were worried about the lack of security for their team, and they were assured by the Germans that extra security would be assigned to them, 
but this was never put in place. It was said that West German authorities had a tip-off from a Palestinian informant in Beirut three weeks before the massacre. The informant told West Germany that Palestinians were planning an incident at the Olympic Games and the foreign ministry in Bonn viewed the tip-off seriously enough to pass it on to the Secret Service in Munich and urged that all possible security measures be taken. However, they failed to act on the tip and have since denied the tip ever existed. I mean, what the fuck were they thinking? It wasn't like the world was a happy place at the time. There were terrorist events going on all over the place during the 70s, for fuck's sake. Once the drama was unfolding, instead of clearing the area of onlookers and media, they were allowed to film the goings-on and the terrorists were able to watch the TV and know exactly what was happening outside. I mean, you can't make this shit up, people. When the hostage drama started, the West Germans were caught flat-footed as they didn't have an emergency response team, SWAT team, whatever you call it, to deal with a terrorist attack. They had to cobble up a few local and border police that had lit... The only experience they had using rifles was because they went to competitions on the weekends and to go against highly trained terrorists. I guess you can call these guys the SAS, Saturday and Sunday police. At the airport, the guns they were using were just not up to the task of accurate fire over the distance they were firing from. The police had no night vision, no bulletproof vests, and they didn't even have a helmet between them. Plus, there should have been at least 10 shooters, two for each known terrorist, but then again, they knew there was eight terrorists at the helicopter site when they were boarding. So there should have been at least 16 shooters at the airport. Five police against eight highly armed and trained bad guys. This was never going to end well. Even the helicopter pilots landed in the wrong orientation. So they couldn't get a clear shot at the terrorists. No wonder the guys on the plane voted to run away and abandon the missions. They're the only ones with any sense. Now, in the end of all of this, did the Israelis get revenge? Two of the three surviving gunmen, Mohammed Safadi and Adnan al-Gashi, were allegedly killed by Mossad as part of Operation Wrath of God. Al-Gashi was allegedly located after making contact with a cousin in the Gulf state in, in a Gulf state and Safadi was found by remaining in touch with family in Lebanon. Now this can't be confirmed at all as there are conflicting reports 
but I won't go too much into that detail for fear of losing you. The third surviving gunman, Jamal Al-Gashi, was known to be alive as of 1999, hiding in North Africa or in Syria. He has granted interviews in 1992 and 1999, but he fears for his life. So, that was the 1972 Munich Olympic tragedy. Totally preventable. Once the hostage drama was underway, critical mistakes were made that ended up in the deaths of 11 athletes and one policeman. Plus, of course, the perpetrators. Let's hope they've learned a valuable lesson from that. But as we see, even today, terror attacks are difficult to prevent. So, that's about all for this week's episode. Now we go to housekeeping and Patreon shoutouts. Thanks go out to David C., Glynis, Nikki, Alana in her silver chair, Dale, Katie F., and Andrew E. And of course, thanks to all the existing members of the Island Patreon group. Thank you very much. Two, oh, three mugs of rage are going out as well, plus sticker awards this week. Make sure you let me know if you expect to get them and you don't. To become a Patreon of the Island, go to patreon.com forward slash true crime island and for as little as a dollar a month you get commercial free weekly episodes all money goes back into the show and to keep the island afloat if you just want to donate on a one-off basis then you can paypal to the island at cambo at truecrimeisland.com but everyone gets commercial free episodes every week regardless You can show your support of the island by just sharing or reviewing at the usual places. It all helps. The website is truecrimeisland.com where there's a button to get merch such as t-shirt, hoodies and mugs and that way you can show your support for the island and look cool at the same time. Koozies or beer coolers and stickers can be purchased as well. Just email me at cambo at truecrimeisland.com Of course, don't forget to find the island on Facebook. Just do a search for True Crime Island and join the closed group. You can also join my Cambo Ford Facebook group as well as if you like. Twitter and Instagram are at truecrimeisland.com I hope you all like the Halloween podcast that popped up last week. There's plenty of podcasts did them. And I'd like to give another shout out to Beck and Tyler at the Minds of Madness. I got some great swag this week. The baseball shirt is lovely and the stickers and beer cooler are much appreciated. So this week's promo is for the great Aussie podcast Bloody Murder with Tara and Barney. I've listened to this since day one and it's well worth the sub if you haven't listened. They have some great merch as well, so check them out. So that's all, folks. I'm your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night.
And he goes, don't be a hero, mate. And I said, I'm not trying to be a hero, but the police are coming. Good evening, and this city remains stunned by yesterday's massacre. They are indeed. Let's get murdery. What were you thinking that first moment when the crocodile latched on? Smell the glory, daddy. Senor Nakupa. I was singing, I'm gone. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. We make bloody murder. Indeed. It's a weekly true crime podcast focusing on lesser known serial killers and crime stories from Australia. And around the globe. I like eating bananas and punching children. And I ran out of bananas. (laughs) Bloody murder is available on iTunes, Stitcher. And pretty much everywhere.